Hello, and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear episode three of my book, Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. This is the beginning of chapter two, which is going to take place over this episode as well as the next one. And the focus is going to be a continuation of where we left off in the last episode at the end of chapter one, where I talked about that strange afternoon on 585 BCE, when the sun darkened and it stopped a war in its sixth year of fighting. At the end of the last episode, I hinted that there was one man who was allegedly able to predict this eclipse hundreds of years before it was even possible. Thales of Miletus. In this episode, I am going to dive deep into who Thales was and try and parse out what is the myth of Thales versus who is the man. Because a lot ends up being attributed to this man who lived over 2,500 years ago, and he is considered one of the most fundamental people in building Western culture. Also in this episode, I'm going to reveal the fates of what happened to the Lydian and Median empires. But the bigger focus I wanted to put on in this episode, as well as the next episode, is how Thales could have possibly predicted this eclipse that scared two kings so much that they stopped warring with each other. It was the fact that the eclipse ended the battle that first initially caught my attention, but... When I found out that Thales had allegedly predicted this eclipse even before it was thought to be possible, I needed to delve in deeper, and it turned out that there was a lot more underneath the surface here than what is usually reported on, and it was enough that I thought I might as well dedicate an entire chapter to Thales' relationship to this earliest recorded event in history. There are a lot of old Greek pronunciations that I do my best to pronounce appropriately in this and the next episode, but please forgive me if any of those are off. I did my best. So what you're going to hear over the course of this chapter is a lot of academic information that usually isn't pulled out and shared when discussing this in history. But I found it fascinating enough that I wanted to give all the topics an appropriate amount of attention and why it's going to take two episodes to cover this topic. 
Once again, please feel free to donate if you feel that all of this work that I've done to share this information with you succinctly and to put together all of these sources is worth it. And with every donation, you do get a PDF copy of my book, so if you are finding this interesting and don't want to wait for the weeks to go by to hear how the rest of this book goes, a single donation will get you access to a copy of this book, and you can also follow when new updates are coming at no character limit at mastodon.world. You can also reach out at no character limit at protonmail.com. So with that, let's get to it. Here is episode three of Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. Chapter 2 Thales, the Man, the Legend. Part 1 Thales, the Legend. While most people alive in 585 BCE attributed the mysterious eclipse to sorcery, peris, or other mythical creatures, Thales of Miletus not only dismissed these superstitions, but he is said to have actually predicted the eclipse to occur. Historians today have come to widely accept Thales' prediction, that it has since been called the Eclipse of Thales, and it is why the Battle of the Eclipse on May 28th of that year is often referred to as the earliest recorded event in history that can be definitively pinned down to a date. To say that Thales was a man ahead of his time would be a substantial understatement. The mere fact that Thales predicted the 585 BCE eclipse makes him notable because, to this day, there is no known information that Thales would have had access to in order to have predicted such an event. How Thales predicted the eclipse? whether there is lost information from the ancient world that he used to determine his prediction, and whether Herodotus was accurate in his writings, are all the cause of a myriad of academic articles on the famed eclipse. In documenting the Lydomedian War, all translations of Herodotus have very similar language in the sentence directly after the mention of the Battle of the Eclipse, which was discussed in the last chapter. Quote, This event had been foretold by Thales, the Milesian, who forewarned the Ionians of it, fixing for it the very year in which it actually took place. End quote. Thales just may have been the most formidable intellectual of his time. 
He lived in the modern city of Miletus, on the western end of Lydia, far away from the war on its eastern front. Having lived before the likes of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, it was Aristotle himself who called Thales the first philosopher. The early 20th century polymath Bertrand Russell echoed Aristotle's sentiments over 2,000 years later, stating that Western philosophy begins with Thales. Thales was also immortalized as one of the original seven sages of Greece, each of which was renowned for their wisdom and knowledge that they imparted onto the burgeoning Greek society. Thales is credited for the discovery of nature, since he was the first in recorded history to assign natural laws as the cause of natural phenomena. The gods, sorcery, witchcraft, and spirits were the primary reason for phenomena during Thales' time, and why Syaxeres and Aliates were so keen to make peace after six years of unforgivable war. In a time where soothsayers and oracles held all the weight, Thales dismissed these superstitions outright in turn for something more real. He was the first to form general principles and create hypotheses. He has even been called the father of science over 1,500 years before Galileo Galilei, who was nicknamed the father of modern science. While none of Thales' original work has survived, his teachings and discoveries have survived through the subsequent and more famous Greek philosophers. Aristotle was heavily influenced by the teaching of Thales, and Thales had allegedly met with a young Pythagoras and advised him to go study in Egypt a critical location where Thales himself learned some of his own unique knowledge. At the time, Egypt had some of the best schools in the known world, particularly the cities of Heliopolis, which is discussed later in this book, Memphis, and Thebes. But it's the legends that surround Thales that make him larger than life. Beyond being the first sage, he's one of the contenders for the original attribution of the famous Greek maxim, Know Thyself. According to the 3rd century CE philosopher Diogenes Laertius, several other witticisms were also attributed to Thales, as Laertius relates. Quote, he held there was no difference between life and death. Why then, said one, do you not die? Because, said he, there is no difference. To the question, which is older, day or night, he replied, night is older by one day. Someone asked him whether a man could hide an evil deed from the gods. No, he replied, nor yet an evil thought. 
To the adulterer who inquired if he should deny the charge upon oath, he replied that perjury was no worse than adultery. Being asked what is difficult, he replied, to know oneself. What is easy? To give advice to another. What is most pleasant? Success. What is the divine? That which has neither beginning nor end. To the question, what was the strangest thing he had ever seen, his answer was, an aged tyrant. How can one best bear adversity? If he should see his enemies in worse plight. How shall we lead the best and most righteous life? By refraining from doing what we blame in others. What man is happy? He who has a healthy body, a resourceful mind, and a docile nature. End quote. Another legend put forth by Laertius and told in several of its iterate forms is that of a tripod that was found by someone and the decision on who deserved to have it afterwards. A tripod in the ancient world was often associated with religious practices, such as sacrifices or as seats for oracles. Most versions of the legend have the Oracle at Didyma, which was a shrine to Apollo in Miletus, proclaim that the tripod should be given to him who had done the most good by his wisdom, or whoever is the most wise. All of the versions say that upon this proclamation, the tripod was given to Thales. But Thales, in humility, passed it along to another of the seven sages of Greece, who then passed it on to another, and so on. Most of the versions have it ending up in Thales' hands again after this humble brag shuffle, where he ends up passing it up to Didyma to be dedicated to Apollo. While it was accepted by the priests, the legend stresses that Thales was given this prize twice when all other sages received it only once, and to commemorate this legend, it was allegedly affixed to the tripod as a plaque, where anyone at Didyma could see the twice-won tripod of Thales. In this legend, it is Thales' humility that is found to be honorable, as Didyma was one of the most powerful centers of faith in the ancient world. And then, there is the legend of the oil presses relayed by Aristotle. Quote, there is an anecdote of Thales the Milesian and his financial scheme, which involves a principle of universal application, but is attributed to him on account of his reputation for wisdom. He is reproached for his poverty, which was supposed to show that philosophy was of no use. According to the story, he knew by his skill in the stars while it was yet winter that there would be a great harvest of olives in the coming year. So, having a little money, he gave deposits for the use of all the olive presses in Chios and Miletus, which he hired at a low price because no one bid against him. 
when the harvest time came, and many were wanted all at once and of a sudden, he let them out at any rate which he pleased, and made a quantity of money. Thus, he showed the world that philosophers can easily be rich if they like, but that their ambition is of another sort. He is supposed to have given a striking proof of his wisdom. But, as I was saying, his scheme for getting wealth is of universal application, and is nothing but the creation of a monopoly. It is an art often practiced by cities when they are in want of money. They make a monopoly of provisions. End quote. Aristotle purports that someone basically calls out Thales for being poor, and in a flex move that only Thales of Miletus could pull off, he studied the stars and determined that the upcoming year would be an excellent one for olive oil. Even in Aristotle's telling, Thales was looking up into the sky beyond the clouds for truth. If this legend is true, he likely used his knowledge of the seasons to predict the quality of the upcoming harvest, like an ancient version of the farmer's almanac. And upon determining the likelihood of a good olive crop, he proceeded to buy out all of the olive presses in Miletus and in the neighboring city of Chios at low prices, since it was still very early and waited for the olive season. And as predicted, the season was excellent, and when all of the growers needed to press their olives for oil, they were forced to contract out Thales' oil presses. In this way, Thales became rich and proved that philosophers weren't motivated by material wealth, but instead by the wealth derived from understanding the world around us. This has led some people to claim that Thales created the first monopoly in history, and spin Thales' story as evidence that one of the earliest and wisest philosophers was also a savvy businessman. But that is directly refuted in Aristotle's own text when he says that Thales showed the world that philosophers can easily be rich if they like, but that their ambition is of another sort. Aristotle also states explicitly that Thales did not create the first monopoly in history by saying that monopolies are an art often practiced by cities when they are in want of money so that they make a monopoly of provisions. It is likely that Thales also was not the first private citizen to implement such a tactic either. But legends have a way of aggrandizing the figure. Chapter 2, Part 2 The Fall of of two empires, Lydia and Media. Herodotus also mentions Thales in two later occasions within the histories. In neighboring Media, Cyaxares's son, Astyages, was now having problems with the empire his father had built. 
At his side was his Lydian wife, whom the heavens bound together to end the Lydomedian War. Once again, rebellion was fomenting in the cursed corpse of the Assyrian Empire, which became an increasing concern to Astyages. And once again, the rebellion was being led by another relatively unknown eastern vassal just as the Medes had once been themselves. This time, it was the Persians who marched on the empire, led by a man who would become known to history as Cyrus the Great. Only about 35 years after the Battle of the Eclipse, the Median Empire fell to Cyrus's rebellion in about the year 549 BCE. Astyages was brought to Cyrus the Great in chains and was claimed to be allowed to live out the rest of his days in peace, serving in Cyrus's court until his death. Now, Cyrus sought to consolidate and strengthen his own empire, while the Lydians once again looked east and noticed how their once formidable enemy was crushed by an internal rebellion. By this time, King Aliades had also died, and the rule of Lydia was passed on to his son, Croesus, the brother of Astyages' wife. King Croesus must have considered the problems that his father faced with the Medes that led to the Lydo-Median War, and saw an opportunity to scoop up the vast empire that was rife with internecine conflict. The Persian Empire was still young and untested, and Croesus saw this as Lydia's opportunity to kill it in the cradle before it grew strong enough to once again threaten their eastern borders. Croesus sought the guidance of the oracle at Delphi, who cryptically responded that if Croesus attacked the Persians, that he would destroy a great empire. The oracle also suggested that if Croesus was to attack Persia, that he should ally himself with whatever Greek state seemed the most powerful to him. Quickly, Croesus was able to form an alliance with Sparta before eagerly striking east to destroy the fated empire. With his troops heading to their eastern front, they once again reached the Halys River and found that it was too deep to cross. It is here where Herodotus once again mentions Thales, this time coming to the rescue over Croesus's predicament at the Halys. When faced with the depth of the river, Croesus and his troops received help, quote, according to the general belief of the Greeks, by the aid of Thales the Milesian. The tale is that Croesus was in doubt how he should get his army across, as the bridges were not yet made at that time and that Thales, who happened to be in the camp, divided the stream and caused it to flow on both sides of the army, instead of on the left side only. This he effected thus. 
Beginning some distance above the camp, he dug a deep channel where he brought round in a semicircle so that it might pass to the rearward of the camp, and that thus the river diverted from its natural course into the new channel at the point where this left the stream might flow by the station of the army, and afterwards fall again into the ancient bed. In this way, the river was split into two streams, which were both easily fordable. It is said by some that the water was entirely drained off from the natural bed of the river. End quote. When he wasn't changing the course of rivers for the Lydian king, Thales was also regarded as a prominent statesman. Miletus was not culturally a Lydian city, despite being within the empire's boundaries and their powerful city bristled under the Lydian yoke. The Milesians were not willing subjects of the Lydian king, whether it was Aleates or Croesus, whom Thales explicitly called despots. Milesians instead saw themselves as part of the Ionian Greek society, which extended along the western shores and islands of Lydia. The Milesians had fought King Aleates before the Lydo-Median War, and had been forced into an alliance with Lydia, which allowed the Milesians to remain independent in their government provided that they supported Lydia in foreign affairs. The rest of the Ionian cities were not even afforded this level of autonomy, which demonstrates the respect that the city held above all of the other Greek cities. Yet, despite this special treatment, Miletus continued to chafe under this alliance. After Aleates, King Croesus continued to expand the Lydian Empire with success before he took aim at Persia. It was during Croesus's campaign against the Persians that Thales, now likely in his late 70s and near the end of his life, suggested that the Ionian Greeks form a centralized government with a capital situated at the center of Ionia. This centralized government, a sort of congress with representatives from each city, would be able to deliberate and act more efficiently in the face of the present war with the Persians. This is the other place in the histories where Herodotus mentions the accomplishments of Thales. However, Thales' advice was rejected by the Ionians, who enjoyed their autonomy from one another and didn't want to commit to such a powerful ruling body representing so many places. With Croesus having a reputation of success and far off on the eastern borders of the empire, the western Ionians did not see Cyrus as any great threat. Having underestimated the Persians, they would soon come to rue the rejection of Thales' idea of a unified governing body. Meanwhile, on the eastern edges of Lydia, Croesus believed that he had just knocked Persia on their heels, 
after crossing the Halys and breaking the boundary agreement made at the Battle of the Eclipse, the Lydians went deep into Persian territory and attacked the city of Teria. Croesus successfully sacked the city, enslaved its citizens, and went on to return home, confident in the belief that he had inflicted enough damage on the Persians to hold off any counterattack at least for the winter, and maybe for good. Croesus had not only created an alliance with Sparta, but also the Egyptians and Babylonians too, all of whom were sending reinforcements for a renewed campaign the following spring. So the Lydian-Spartan-Egyptian-Babylonian alliance appeared to have Persia all but in hand. But by December of that same year, Cyrus had marched his Persian army without stopping across the Halys and deep into Lydia, much to the surprise of Croesus. Even so, Croesus had little reason to worry. The Lydian and Persian forces met in western Anatolia, now near the town of Thimbra. Croesus's forces far outnumbered Cyrus's, and he had the home field advantage. With the likelihood of victory so high, Croesus prepared for his victory. But once again, Croesus found himself stunned when the battle was a blowout decisively in favor of Cyrus. This tragic upset left Croesus to retreat to the Lydian capital of Sardis, and quickly throw up a hapless final defense of his ancient empire. The siege of Sardis lasted a mere two weeks before the capital fell, and the great empire of Lydia ceased to exist forever. Croesus was then placed upon a pyre to be burned alive, but was spared by Cyrus, or divine intervention, before going on to advise Cyrus the Great in the same way that Astyages did after his defeat. Nearly the whole of Ionia had fought with Croesus against the Persians, only to see his empire defeated. Now that Cyrus was in charge of the Lydian lands, the Ionians asked for the same agreement which they held under Croesus, to which Cyrus refused them all. That is, all with the exception of the city of Miletus. When Croesus had asked for an alliance from the Milesians, it was allegedly Thales who advised the city to stay their hand against the Persians. Since Miletus was the only city to not fight against the Persians, Cyrus continued to allow Miletus the independence they had previously maintained under Lydian rule. Thales had wisely counseled the Milesians, who heeded his advice and were able to maintain independence after the Persian victory over Lydia. Thales had also wisely counseled the rest of the Ionians, but his advice went ignored by them. In the ensuing Ionian rebellion against the Persians, they were met with a crushing defeat by Cyrus the Great, while Miletus, once again, 
remained neutral. Could Thales really have been all of these things? A witty philosopher, an astonishing astronomer, a titan of industry, a clever engineer, a sagacious statesman. Once again, it is important to remember the shifting dunes of history and how what has been passed down to us is the result of a 2,500-year-old game of telephone with precious few primary documents that remain to know what really happened. And any of those primary sources that do survive have gone through translations and cultural lenses that lead to further misunderstanding and mythologizing across the generations that are so typical of the human mind. Our penchant for nostalgia can override perhaps otherwise less exciting versions of history in favor of more salacious and aggrandizing versions. The fact that none of Thales' sources have survived, coupled with Aristotle's own infatuation with Thales, only emboldens the likelihood to mythologize the ancient sage. Is the story of Thales and the oil presses true, or merely a parable used to highlight the power of philosophical wisdom? Did Thales truly respond to the question of what is difficult with know thyself, or did this honor get heaped upon him merely for being associated with the foundations of Western civilization? There is another parable that was told by Plato, who also happened to be Aristotle's teacher, that he attributes to Socrates, which is Plato's own teacher, and this parable once again puts Thales at the center. Quote, Well, here's an instance. They say Thales was studying the stars, Theodorus, and gazing aloft when he fell into a well and a witty and amusing Thracian servant girl made fun of him because, she said, he was wild to know about what was up in the sky, but failed to see what was in front of him and under his feet. End quote. In other versions, Thales fell into a ditch, and an old woman chastised him. Like the story of the olive press, Thales is put at the center of a lesson that seems more geared towards the reader than to Thales' actual experiences. Even in these early days of Greek philosophy, Thales' existence was legendary. In both the world of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, brilliant individuals would sometimes be called Thales as a pronoun in the same way people use Einstein today to mean that they were a genius. Greek playwright Aristophanes has one of his characters profess, Why, the man's a Thales! And the Roman playwright Titus Machius Plautus uses the phrase, Hello there, you Thales, sarcastically to demean someone. But whether it was Herodotus, Aristotle, Plato, Aristophanes, or Plautus, all of these references come hundreds of years after Thales' own life, 
And so there may be some idolization of the character in the same way that Americans may idolize George Washington and myths like how he never told a lie that can even be confused with fact. It may be that Thales stood in as a symbol for some sort of Ionian renaissance happening primarily in Miletus at this time, as the city was known for its revolutionary scientific and philosophical thinking, considered as the most important of the twelve cities of Ionia. Two other leaders of Miletus are noteworthy as well, Anaximander and Anaximenes both of whom appeared to be heavily influenced by Thales while making their own significant contributions to Greek society. While Thales may have been participant to all of the stories passed down to us about him, it's more likely that at least some parts of his history are mythologized. Regarding the story of Thales diverting the Halys River for King Croesus of Lydia, Herodotus outright states that he doesn't believe the story, both before and after he relays it, certain that bridges were already available to cross at the time. Logically, this makes sense, as there had been peace between the Lydian and Median Empire for over three decades leading up to Lydia's war with Persia, and even more, the Persians were not expecting Croesus's attack, so it's unlikely that they destroyed all of the bridges. Herodotus even points out that the story of Thales diverting the river was a Greek belief and not his own, stating, quote, When Croesus reached the river Halys, he transported his army across it, as I maintain by the bridges which exist there at the present day. But according to the general belief of the Greeks, by the aid of Thales the Milesian, end quote. And here's where Herodotus goes on to relay the Greek story of how Thales diverted the river around the troops for King Croesus, and Herodotus also then goes on to say this after. Quote, In this way, the river was split into two streams, which were both easily fordable. It is said by some that the water was entirely drained off from the natural bed of the river. But I am of a different opinion for I do not see how, in that case, they could have crossed it on their return. End quote. Thales is said to have perished the same year as the Lydian Empire, in 546 BCE, attending an athletic contest where he was overcome by heat, thirst, and exhaustion. Historian W.K.C. Guthrie states that the, quote, Ideas of Thales and other Milesians created a bridge between the two worlds, the world of myth and the world of the mind, end quote. Yet, the irony is palatable when realizing that the life of the man who dedicated himself to standing against mythological explanations had become mythologized himself. 
With this lens, it may seem that Herodotus could also have been prone to exaggeration when writing that Thales had predicted the eclipse over the Halys when there was no known method for predicting an eclipse at the time. While he may have been shrewd enough to recognize that the Lydians likely used existing bridges to cross the Halys to battle Persia, he may have been too dazzled by the story of the prediction of the eclipse to consider that another popularized myth. Thales, the myth, who glowed with sublime wisdom, established a monopoly just to prove a point, diverted the course of an entire river, presciently guided his city through a war, and fell down a well only to learn a very important lesson from a servant, easily fits with the image of a man who predicted an eclipse centuries before it was possible. Chapter 2 Part 3 Thales on Trial But... In the case of Thales' prediction of the 585 BCE eclipse, there is a second source beyond Herodotus that also claims that he predicted the famous eclipse. Diogenes Laertius, whose book Lives and Opinions of Eminent Philosophers still survives from the 3rd century CE, has an entire section written on Thales, which includes many of his legendary feats, including his famed prediction of the eclipse. Laertius mentions that Thales may not have written anything down and was only a speaker, but also says that other sources claim he wrote at least two treatises, one entitled On the Solstice and the other On the Equinox. Laertius states that Thales, quote, seemed by some accounts to have been the first to study astronomy, the first to predict eclipses of the sun and to fix the solstices so Eudemus in his History of Astronomy. It was this which gained for him the admiration of Xenophanes and Herodotus and the notice of Heraclitus and Democritus. End quote. The fact that Laertius's book was written 700 years after Herodotus and nearly 1,000 years after Thales at first does not lend itself as a credible source to give any more meaningful information than what Herodotus already provided in his histories. But Laertius cites his source being the History of Astronomy by Eudemus for this information. This specific citation is unlike most of the rest of what he writes on Thales. Eudemus is one of the famed students of Aristotle, and though living 100 years after Herodotus, it's clear that the information Eudemus provides about Thales and the eclipse didn't originate from Herodotus's histories. 
Eudemus points out the claim that Thales' prediction of the eclipse is what caught Herodotus' attention in the first place. Eudemus's history of astronomy has since been lost as well, so Laertius's preservation of Eudemus's information is what makes his work so important here regarding the 585 BCE eclipse. Eudemus also mentions Xenophanes as a person other than Herodotus, whose attention was captured by Thales' prediction of the famous eclipse. Unlike everyone else that was mentioned, Xenophanes was alive for about 25 years at the same time as Thales, and may have even had the opportunity to speak with Thales personally. While Xenophanes was from the city of Ephesus, somewhat north of Miletus, the two were still relatively close Ionian cities. Further evidence of Thales' influence on Xenophanes was his renunciation of Homeric and Hesiodic mythologies and the way they gave base human-like qualities to the gods. While today Homer and Hesiod are considered fundamental to the basics of the traditional Western world, Xenophanes pushed back on their personified portrayal of the gods and believed that natural causes were attributed to natural phenomena on Earth, not the gods. Xenophanes believed the gods were too abstract and complicated to be anthropomorphized. While there is no known contact with Thales or other Milesians, Xenophanes's penchant in looking for natural explanations to phenomena, rather than from the gods, hints that Xenophanes followed Thales' teachings. And Eudemus goes to claim that it was Thales' eclipse prediction that caught Xenophanes' attention to begin with. This glimpse from a non-Herodotus source then caused many historians and astronomers to believe that Thales was more likely to have accurately predicted this eclipse to get the attention of another living philosopher during his own life. There are other reasons to believe that Thales had the ability to predict the 585 BCE eclipse as well. He had a mathematical mind and is credited for providing some of the foundations for geometry. He's called the first mathematician and was born almost 350 years before Archimedes, who is considered the father of mathematics. Thales' impact might only be compared to someone like Isaac Newton in his groundbreaking ability to understand the mathematics of the universe in such a fundamental way that he shaped countless brilliant minds that followed him. Thales was discovering and teaching some fundamental rules of geometry before geometry as a form of mathematics even existed. Geometry works the way it does, in part because Thales helped conceptualize it for the Western world. 
How much of this knowledge he brought back from what he learned in Egypt is unknown. So it may be that he only learned this information while in Africa and was the first to bring it back to the Greeks. One mathematical concept from Thales that he brought to Greece is the ability to determine the diameter of a circle, a concept we're so dependent on today that even to imagine how revolutionary it once was is difficult because it would require us to imagine a world where that wasn't understood to begin with. Thales wasn't just trying to determine the diameter of a single circle, but instead for any circle that could ever possibly exist. Thales didn't stop with merely finding the diameter. He went on to recognize that the base angles in an isosceles triangle are equal to one another and that angles opposite of each other made by straight lines crossing paths are also equal to each other. And he also discovered how to determine if two triangles are congruent. Today, nearly every middle school student on the planet gets exposed to Thales' discoveries, not because they are easy, but because they are so fundamental. Yet, he is very rarely credited with introducing this knowledge when it is taught to us. Thales allegedly used this knowledge to determine the distance of ships out at sea and the height of the pyramids in Egypt. Perhaps his most important contribution, though, was that he used his unique discoveries to create a mathematical theorem, which is still attributed to him today. A theorem is a mathematical proof, an unshakable universal truth that can't be broken. It is because mathematics can produce theorems is why the subject is so valuable to begin with and taught universally in schools as a core academic subject to this day. We know that math can be used to determine what's true anywhere in the universe or even in a universe that is nothing like ours. It is a language of abstraction that can be used to understand programs, objects, and interactions in a way that no human language can. In this way, math can be more beautiful than the words that we use to speak to one another because it is the unifying language of the universe. To truly comprehend the meaning of a theorem, can bring a closer understanding to creation itself. Thales' theorem used a bunch of his other discoveries to make his mathematical proof. To summarize Thales' theorem, take the straight line of the diameter of a circle to create the base of a triangle, the corners being wherever the diameter meets the edge of the circle. The third point, the triangle's apex, can be located anywhere along the circumference of the circle. 
the theorem states that no matter where that third point is along the circumference of the circle, the angle that it creates will always be 90 degrees. I know explaining a theorem over audio is not always the best, but it's pretty easy to look up Thiele's theorem if you're having a hard time understanding it. And I also share a picture of it in my book, which makes it easier to understand. With Thales' theorem, it is possible to find the tangent, or the center of a circle, both enormously useful functions in mathematics. And for over 2,500 years, this knowledge has been preciously passed down through generation after generation of educators, regardless of culture, unanimously using it to improve our modern civilization. And amazingly, it is still as accurate and meaningful as it was when Thales first brought it forth. The practical nature of Thales' mathematical discoveries makes him just as relevant today as he was over 2,500 years ago, while the greater histories of ancient Lydia and Media are lucky to get a brief mention in an early freshman global studies class in high school, thus proving the lesson of Thales' olive press legend. There are greater things or as Aristotle said it, an ambition of another sort that brought meaningful fame onto Thales in a way that wealth and power could not. It's unlikely that he would be credited with such meaningful mathematical discoveries without having a hand in it. But could these advancements also merely be attributed to the myth of Thales rather than the man? we will likely never be able to know for certain. But most historians accept these achievements as his own. If all of this is true then, Thales had a mind for precision that was ripe for the tedium of studying the heavens. There are several mentions of him studying astronomy, such as his treatises on the equinox and the solstice, as well as the parable of him falling down the well. Thales must have been able to appreciate the finer subtleties that are required to be a true admirer of the sky's secrets. It would seem odd that Thales would get all of these attributions regarding the studying of the sky if he did not do so to some meaningful extent. It appears then that Thales tarried a little longer than most when looking up, and the universe shared a little bit more of its mysteries with him. A limitless well of fascination, the universe has the ability to reveal the deepest truths of all existence, where the earth simply cannot and perhaps why Thales was willing to trip and fall sometimes, giving his attention to it. At first glance, the glimmer of the night sky may seem so static and predictable that it appears to be frozen and fixed like a ceiling. But glimpse a little deeper and it'll reveal the elements of nightmares. Boundless icy depths, cauldrons hotter than hell, all-consuming emptiness, star-destroying explosions, 
and the very shredding of existence itself. But Thales could not know all of this at the time, but he was one of the earliest in Western civilization to begin figuring out what it all could mean. Thales could appreciate the predictability of the heavens. Therefore, Thales may have used his mathematical mind in an attempt to unravel the mysteries and machinations of the sun and moon in relation to the earth to predict the fateful eclipse of 585 BCE. It is because of this very predictability that the battle of the eclipse can today, 2600 years later, be pinned down to not only the year, a virtual impossibility when attempting to date events of antiquity, but to the second, provided that we could find out the specific location of the battle. Today, astronomers can determine the exact time and locations of eclipses 2,600 years into the future, just as well as we can 2,600 years into the past because the movements of the sun, the earth, and the moon are so predictable that the universe gives us a reliable clock that allows us to glimpse into the depths of time, both forward and backward, in a nearly omniscient way. The universe speaks a language of contradictions that is both subtle yet violent, monotonous yet miraculous, foreign yet familiar. It has created everything that we've ever known, bringing us every conceivable comfort and protection, and yet it is simultaneously so completely alien and dangerous that it has us regularly questioning reality. It takes a curious mind like that of Thales to recognize the subtly powerful way that the universe unifies us something which he endlessly puzzled over. Despite the academic consensus being that Thales did predict the eclipse of 585 BCE, there are still a lot of questions that remain on how he did it, if he did it at all. The topic of whether Thales actually predicted the eclipse that is named after him is hotly debated in academic circles who study antiquity. Those skeptical of Thales' most famous achievement have the strongest piece of evidence on their side, mainly that there was no known way to have predicted eclipses in Greece at the time of Thales. Even many who support the idea that Thales predicted the eclipse claim that he may have done so on a fluke or with imprecise information since they are forced to acknowledge this inconvenient fact. It wouldn't be until Hipparchus, over 400 years later, that the Greeks developed a reliable method for predicting eclipses. Hipparchus was only able to do this by understanding fundamentals about the Earth that Thales didn't understand, such as the Earth being round, and by inventing his own form of mathematics, trigonometry, to calculate it all. That Thales could accurately predict the 585 BCE eclipse without any of this 
even puts the most ardent supporters of Thales predicting it on their heels. As meticulous or brilliant as Thales was, the only reliable way Thales may have been able to make his prediction would have been by using the data of astronomers that had lived before him, something ancient Greece did not reliably have at this time. Critics also point out that if someone were to be able to predict an eclipse, that they typically would have the knowledge to predict an eclipse to the day, not merely the year, as Herodotus stated. That Herodotus allowed the story of Thales diverting the water of the Halys for Croesus's troops, despite openly doubting it himself, proves that Herodotus may be inputting information into his histories that he did not know the full accuracy of. The Greeks, who were strengthening their identity as a regional power during the time of Herodotus, may have been more willing to promote the legends of impossible feats by their founders rather than a less glorious truth. Skeptics of Thales' prediction have a pretty sound case. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.